Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm also a Simon. My name is Simon Mundy, and I'm also a poet. Um, but the poet that we're hearing today is both Simon Armitage and a poet from about 1400. And the combination of the two, we want to explore, first of all, the context of the poem and the context of the story, and then talk a little bit about why uh, that poem is, still has an extraordinary resonance today and what it will can mean to us. And throughout the process of the next hour, we'll uh, be interspersing it with some of the readings from the poems too. Simon, I wanted to start by asking why you feel this text is important to translate now. Why bring it into our, back into our consciousness? Uh, well, I think there are two things, really. One's to do with where the poem sits now in, uh, you know, in contemporary society and also where it sits for me as a poet. And that goes back seven or eight, maybe nine years ago now to uh, when I decided to translate Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, which was a happy accident as much as anything. I'd been... Um, annoying my wife hanging around in her office uh, while she was trying to do some work and there was a, a book poking out of the bookshelf which scholars often call the green book it's Tolkien and Gordon's transcription of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and I was flicking through it and I noticed a word in there Wadwo uh, which anybody who knows Ted Hughes's poems will, you know, will, be, will be curious about and it's a, it's a Middle English word meaning um, sort of troll or, or crag dweller, something like that. Although I noticed rather mischievously in a letter uh, to a friend, Hughes had, had, had translated it as a rangatang, um, which we get a lot of in West Yorkshire. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I went through this process of uh, you know, thinking that it was a preposterous idea to the notion that I was put on the planet for no other reason to translate that poem, uh, to sort of bring Gawain home, because it'd, it'd become a bit of a plaything for, for academics. Um, you know, people who are interested in scholarly restorations aren't always interested in what I think is at the, at the heart of this kind of work, which is alliteration, you know, the noise and the music that the poems make. And uh, also they, they think with that poem that the author was from somewhere in the North Midlands, um, not far, you know, across the Peak District from, from where I live. So it, it, it was, there was a sense for me, I think, of wanting to, to bring him ho home a little bit. After I'd finished that, um, which was meant to be a little sort of private project, just something that I could get on with when I, when I wasn't working on my own poems, and it, it, it sort of bloomed and uh, sort of just enlarged in every direction and uh, I, I think that translation of Gawain uh, has now sold something like 100,000 copies in this country and, and the States and as I say it was just meant to be like a little hobby and I, I, I realised that it was something that I, I wanted to carry on doing. For example, I, I wouldn't say that I was fluent in Middle English uh, but I'd, I'd taken the time to become familiar with it, and I don't speak any other languages. Some people say that I barely speak English. Uh, so I, 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 I really wanted to find another work to, to translate. And again, it was, it was another coincidence, really. I, I got on a train in Oxford, and um, 
Bernard Donoghue got on, uh, a poet who we, we both know, and somebody who um, himself has made a, an excellent translation of, of Sir Gawain. And, and I was asking him you know, whether he, he could recommend other texts. And uh, this was after we'd spent about 10 minutes and I was, uh, I was ridiculing him about Manchester City. Uh, something which I now regret. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, he suggested this, this poem, and I, I wasn't familiar with it at, at all. And it's, it's about twice as long as Gawain. And um, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a political poem. Uh, it's, it starts, uh, as so many of these poems do, with a feast which is interrupted, and all of a sudden Arthur is embarking on a military campaign across Europe. Um, you know, I, I think it is his intention in the poem to fight his way all the way to Rome and to make the Pope kneel in front of him. And uh, the, the, the further and the deeper I read into the poem, the more I could see um, peculiar parallels with our own lives and particularly with the life of Britain in relation to continental Europe. Yes, I mean, what's so fascinating about this story is that it places Arthur very much as a European power magnate. He's not just a king of Britain or even a king of a little bit of Britain, which is what he is in many of the stories. Here he's effectively taking over the role of Charlemagne. He's, he's, he's king of pretty well everything north of the Alps. He is, and there is a point in the poem uh, where he's about to become godlike. Mm. And, uh, and, of course, that's, uh, as in all stories, that's, that's the moment in which he starts to totter and begins to fall. Um, and he's not a nice guy in this either. Well, he? he is to begin with, um, but um, I think that's one of the perhaps one of the moral points of the poem that he oversteps the mark. Mm. Um, I think when he embarks on this campaign, there's a sense of him righting a wrong. He's accused by Rome of stealing lands across Europe and not paying taxes and tributes to Rome. Uh, he disputes this. He says that um, you know that Europe has always belonged. To his, to his fathers and his father's fathers. And so they set off to, to meet the Roman army somewhere in France and then, and then Germany. But he, he oversteps the mark, really. There's one point where he's striding around on the walls of Metz without his armour, um, almost sort of, you know, challenging death and showing himself to be immortal in some ways. And that's, that's as I say, that's when things begin to unravel back at home. There's an interesting historical... Um, connection here as well because um, the poem is written about 1400 I think don't they 1400 here um, was exactly the moment when Henry IV is getting rid of Henry the, uh, of Richard II mm-hmm. in a particularly unpleasant way Henry IV also was Lord of Brecon and built Hay Castle while well, well, he was at it um, but hey, Henry was seizing the throne and it was halfway through the Hundred Years War so he was assuming all these titles, all these lands, not just in Britain that he was seizing from his cousin, but also seizing the titles from across Europe. And I wonder whether that political moment is a very good moment for the author to think, hang on. I think there are all kinds of political and personal echoes running through the, through the poem. And some of them we understand, some of them are conjecture, and, and some of them are very mysterious. It's the same with... With Gawain, I, I really get the sense in Gawain that somebody is poking fun at somebody else, and I think there's a, there is a personal message contained in this poem, which ultimately is a, is a bigger political message. Um, I, I think there's also a sense of restoring King Arthur uh, as a, as a as a British monarch. 
you know, King Arthur, the, the stories go right back to those Welsh roots and then through uh, the Norman stories and eventually he becomes a French, uh, a Norman French possession, uh, Chrétien de Troyes, all the romances. And Arthur actually gets emasculated uh, in those romances through Lancelot. He loses, uh, he loses centre stage in the story. He loses his wife. And I think there is um, an attempt going on in this poem to make Arthur once again king of Britain, all-powerful, all-conquering, as you say. And losing his wife is something he always does, because he loses his wife here, but to his nephew. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's always doing that. He's, he's not, marriage on Arthur was not always terribly successful. Um, the, one of the extraordinary topicalities that strikes me about this at the moment is the way that it is... It's so much, of course, it's about kings overreaching themselves, but it's also about clash of empires and clash of spheres of influence. Uh, Arthur is claiming spheres of influence which reach from the Baltic down into Iberia. Mm -hmm. And he's at the same time, and he comes up against the Roman emperor at the same time, who is claiming through the Pope legitimacy over exactly the same um, uh, process. Of course, all of which was going on in, in. in Europe at that moment with the Holy Roman Empire, but also there's echoes for us, I think, of, of some of our bigger regional clashes now. Yeah, I mean, you just get the impression as you're reading through it that nothing really has changed. I, I, I want to read this, uh, this section near the beginning. So the, 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 um, the challenge is laid down, and a couple of weeks later, Arthur finds himself assembling uh, what these days we would call a task force, uh, on, 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 the, on the beach at Sandwich and uh, I, I, I lived in Portsmouth uh, in 82 uh, when, the, when the task force was being assembled then and I, I, I mean I, I didn't have to ham up the parallels in this, in this poem at all I'll, I'll go here There the, great, there the great were gathered with gallant allies, massing on the foreshore, fitted out marvellously. Dukes and statesmen, some strutting on their steeds, earls of England, armies of archers, stout sheriff shouting sharp instructions to the troops who rallied before the round table, assigning soldiers to certain lords on the seafront in the south, to sail at his say-so. The barges being ready, they rode to the beach to ferry aboard horses and fine battle helmets, loading the livestock and their livery and tack, then the tents, the tough shields, tools to lay siege, canopies, kit bags, exquisite coffers, ponies, hackneys, horses of armour. Thus the stuff of stern knights was safely stored. And when all stock was stowed, they stalled no longer, timing their untying with the turn of the tide. Ships of all sizes ran up the sails, all unfurling at the moment of their monarch's command, and hands at the gunwales hauled up the great anchors, watermen wise to the ways of the waves. The crew at the bow began coiling in the cables of the carriers and cutters and Flemish crafts, They drew sails to the top, they tended the tiller, they stood along the starboard singing their shanties. 
The port's proudest ships found plentiful depth and surged full sail into changeable seas. Without anyone being hurt, they hauled in the skiffs. Shipmates looked sharp to shutter the portholes and tested depth by lowering lead from the luff. They looked to the lodestar as daylight lessened, reckoned a good route when mist rose around them, used their knowing with the needle and stone through the night, when for dread of the dark they dropped their speed, all the sea dogs striking the sails at a stroke. What I love about both the way that you've uh, written the translation and indeed about the original themselves is that both of you poets delight in the, the descriptive possibilities and the language for its own sake. I, I think, you've, I think you've, you're obliged to respond to that. There is a reveling in language in this poem. And um, when academic translations are made of, of this poem and Gawain and other medieval poems of the period, um, the, 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 the true cause there is, is definition. Uh, it's about trying to work out what words mean, what they meant then, and finding a contemporary equivalent. But in choosing that exact word, it takes you away from the sound, from the acoustic properties of the poem. And you end up with something which is very accurate, but not always pleasing on the ear. And one thing that marks this poet out, and I, just, I think we've said it, but just to make the point, we, we have no idea who wrote this poem, no idea whatsoever. Um, the, the, he gets into a kind of, um, and I say he, we, we only think it's a he, um, he gets into a kind of verbal riffing through some sections. I'll, I'll just see if I can find a, a, a quick part here to... It was really peculiar reading that section then, having just watched all those boats coming up the Thames. <laughs> you know you're reaching a certain age when you're getting sniffy about Fern Cotton doing the uh, commentary on, uh, <laughs> on royal events. So I sat there thinking, where's Dimbleby when you need him? Uh, yeah, just um, the, 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 this sort of uh, falling on a particular... Uh, noise or a, usually a, a consonant and, and, and just going with it over ten, sometimes a dozen lines is, is, is very um, particular to, to this text. On Sunday, when the sun had spread through the land, the king called to Florent, that flower among nights. Our Frenchmen are enfeebled. I should have guessed this would follow for these folk are foreigners in these far-flung fields and long for the food and fare of their liking. They are, there are fine forests here to every flank to which our foes have fled, where beasts roam free. Go forth to the fells and forage through the mountains. Sir Ferrant and Sir Floridus shall follow in your footsteps. Our men fall faint, refreshers with flesh, that feeds in the forests on the fruits of the earth. It's also interesting that the insults haven't changed really over, over 600 years, that the, the French are still more interested in their stomachs uh, than they are in the fight. And while we're on the subject of food, I want you to read this little passage here, which I love. I think it's great. You'll see why. Which bit? Oh, this bit, yeah. Uh, this is describing a, a, a feast that uh, Arthur lays on. Uh, even for, for, his, uh, for, the, for the messengers from, from Rome, he's showing himself to be a good host. The first course was carried in before the king in person, boar's head strewn with sparkling silver, served by smartly dressed, highly skilled men of noble descent, 60 in number. 
Then came flesh that for a season had fattened on frumenty, plus beasts of all manner, and many a grand bird, peacocks and plovers on golden platters, porcupine piglets which had never known pasture, herons half hidden in their own fine feathers, plump swans presented on silver plates, Turkish tartlets to tantalise the tongue, meat in pastry that would melt in the mouth, shoulder of boar, the best meat served sliced. Not a drizzle of olive oil anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) There would have been if it would have required a D. So so different from our own hay venison burgers. Um, The... What I love also about this is the use of the word sir. It's so interesting, this, because you have so many different bits of the Arthurian um, textures that are built up over the years, the traditions merging. You've got the Brythonic textures, names like Kaldor, and you've got the, 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 many of the old Welsh stories, the old Brythonic stories, merging into the, into the Norman French ones. You've got the, the idea of heroic empires and, and a bit of Roman history in there or two, made-up Roman history, deliberately made-up Roman history history um, and post-Roman history. And so the sir is such a fascinating word that it comes throughout. Almost everybody's a sir. Even the kings and emperors are sir. And also the enemies as well. Mm. I mean, it's, 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 it's full of courtesy. Yeah, it is true that, uh, that there are times when the king is referred to as Sir King. Mm. Um, there are also moments in the text where Sir is a very useful alliterating device, mm. uh, where you can pull up another two or three uh, S sounds. And I, I talk about this in the introduction, that um, uh, you, you've sort of got to admire the, the, the craftiness of the original author, um, being able to pull on these repeated phrases. Um, so, for example, um, w- b- there are some enemy combatants from Genoa, and they are, they are always the giants of Genoa. And I, I don't think that's to do with any specific DNA coding uh, on their part. It's just a, it's just a, a, you know, a, a useful riff on that noise. Yeah, Genovese are only big if you happen to come from Sicily, aren't they? Really? <laughs> but the, the, um, how does this differ from, from Gawain and the world of Gawain? Because they're pretty well contemporaneous, aren't they? They are. There's lots of similarities. I mean, uh, they're both uh, anonymous in the, you know, in the sense that we, we don't know who, who, who wrote them. Uh, and, and they are both single texts. Um, Gawain, uh, the manuscript is uh, in the British Library, uh, collected with two or three, uh, with with three other uh, long poems, and uh, the, the Death of King Arthur is in Lincoln Cathedral in a manuscript uh, with probably I think about twenty or thirty other pieces, including uh, small little things like a cure for warts. And, uh, and and so I might I might do that next, um, but <laughs> Simon um, Armitage um, uh, homeopathic remedy. Book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, but uh, the, the, I think that's that's where the similarity ends, really. Um, Gawain is a supernatural story. Mm. It's, it's a story of magic, and revolves around one jaw-dropping act in which uh, a man on a green horse. Uh, a green man on a green horse comes riding into to Camelot and lays down a, a challenge. And, and everything thereafter uh, is, is, is based um, really on, on, on a magic trick. Uh, this is very much about politics and about the cut and thrust of battle and about tactics. Um, it, it is, it is a, you know, it's, it's a political work. And uh, the, the map that's described... 
uh, is a pretty accurate uh, description of, of Europe as we know it now and the cities that Arthur's uh, military campaign takes us through. That, that, that differs enormously with Gawain, where Gawain sets off across Britain and we don't even know what Britain is in that poem or, or where its boundaries are or where it might take him. Having said that, there are two, at least two moments in the poem where Arthur has these incredibly vivid dreams yeah. and um, I, I think they, I mean, they're, they're, they're all almost hallucinogenic and I think they, they operate to give us a little insight into his personality. Shall I read one? Do, and they also operate rather like aria in opera and that they give the space for emotions to come through where, as opposed to all the, the thrust of the narrative. Yeah, and a little bit of breathing space yeah. as well, you know, for, aside from people having their heads lopped off. Yes. Mm. Okay, so um, Arthur and his army have set off across the English Channel, and uh, he takes to his bed and uh, and goes to sleep. The monarch was on his mighty boat with many men, enclosed in a cabin among copious equipment, and while resting on a richly arrayed bed, he was soothed to sleep by the swaying of the sea, and he dreamed of a dragon dreadful to behold that came darting over the deep to drown his people, arrowing directly from the regions of the west and swooping with menace over the sea's wide span. His head and neck were hooded all over with hazy azure enameled in bright hues. His shoulders were shawled in shining silver, so the serpent was shielded by steely scales. His wings and his womb were wondrously coloured, and in his marvellous mail he mounted the heavens. His tail was tasselled with bladed tongues, so what fellows it touched were fatally felled. His feet were furred in the finest sable, and his cruel claws were encased in pure gold. So furious were the flames that flowed from his lips that the sea itself seemed to seethe with fire. Then out of the east, to oppose him head on, from above the clouds came a brutish black bear, Huge paws and pads on the pillars of his legs with pinion-sharp claws curved in appearance. Hateful and hideous were his hairs and everything. His legs were bandy and lagged with bushy bristles, all muddy and matted, and he foamed at the mouth, the foulest figure that was ever formed. He went barreling about with a bellicose look, readying those raking claws for the clash. He let rip with such a roar that the whole earth reeled, striking out bloodily as he bullocked into battle. Then the dragon in the distance dived straight for him and chased him through the sky with challengers and chargers, flying and fighting with the focus of a falcon. He attacked with both fire and talons in tandem, but the bear grew bigger and bolder in battle, gouging flesh with his fearful fangs. He caused such cuts with those cruel claws that his breast and belly poured with blood, and his blows were so crashing they cracked the earth's crust 
and rivers ran red with crimson rain. His strength alone might have laid low that lizard, were it not for the flames which he fired in defence. The serpent ascended to the sky ceiling, then stooped steeply through the clouds and struck, attacked with his talons and tore his back, which was ten foot in length from top to tail, till the last living breath was beaten from that bear. Let him fall in the flood and float where it flows. In his cabin, so disturbed was the king by those creatures, he nearly burst with the burden on the bed where he lay. The idea of the, uh, the Welsh dragon beating the Russian bear. Um, they're, they're, they're clearly uh, symbols, um, you know, the, the, the dragon um, being Arthur's symbol, mm. you know, on his father's side. And, uh, and the, the, you know, as you say, the bear of the east. And immediately he calls to his wise men uh, who come running in to interpret the dream. And it's interesting that those symbols of the dragon and the bear symbolise west and east um, long before the current countries which actually bear them as their symbols, yeah. which is, is fascinating. Um, in a way, that leads me on to this question of the Arthurian resonance and why it works for us so well today and why we're all writing about it. Mm. Um, how do you feel, we, did you feel that this, when you attacked uh, uh, an Arthurian epic, that you felt that you were in a, in a tradition yourself or was it meeting some poetic need that you wanted as a storyteller to come to? Well, I think they're separate things in a way. I mean, from my point of view as a as a poet and a and a writer, what's what's compelling for me about this kind of work is that uh, it, it's somehow aside from from my own work. Um, I was saying yesterday that it, you, you can't write poems every day. Uh, you you simply can't operate at that at that pitch and that intensity. And uh, also, you you would produce too many poems. Um, but it, it's, it's a, but but you feel as if you want to. You feel as if you want to be writing, and uh, this, this kind of translation work is is absolutely ideal for me. It means that I can just indulge in the moment-to-moment poetics and not worry about those other things that we're always worried about when we're making our own poems. Uh, particularly, you know, those three. Um, you know, really important moments in the poem, the, the, the title, the first line, and the last line. Uh, I don't have to worry about where this is going or what it's called. Uh, it's already written, so I can just concentrate on the words. And what I also found interesting was that on a day-to-day basis, I could get on with this, even when I wasn't really in a mood to be writing at all. Um, so, it, you know, it offers something slightly different. And I think translation in general offers a kind of an opportunity for harmonising. Um, you know, it's like singing along to the Beach Boys in the car. Uh, you get somebody else's voice and your own voice, and it makes something quite different. You, you, you probably couldn't have managed uh, on your own, and maybe pushes your own voice in a, in a different direction. In terms of the Arthur stories themselves, I just find it interesting that he's been so adaptable. Um, you know, this is somebody... And I know this is going to be heresy for some people, so I apologise before I say it, that um, this is somebody who's probably never really existed. Uh, there are no bones, there are no crowns, there are no documents of, of, of any value to say King Arthur was a real person. There's a sort of historical hole which he might have filled. Having said that, he's unkillable. 
Uh, we can't get rid of him. And he's been very useful to anybody who's come along. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's been uh, a hero for the Welsh, for the Celts, for the French, for the Normans, uh, for the English, for the British. Anybody who's needed him, uh, they've dressed him up in their colours and he's gone out and, and, and fought for their cause and apparently uh, will come again one day. Uh, you know, should we sound the bugle? Uh, he, is the, he is the once and future king. And, uh, you know, in terms of literature, that's proved to be absolutely right. Uh, he's, he's never gone away. It's not because, um, you know, I played too much Dunge Dungeons and Dragons at college or I spend lots of hours playing Assassin's Creed on the computer. It's, 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 not, it's none of that stuff. Um, maybe there's an opportunity for, for a longer narrative uh, in these poems that you know, you, you, I just don't get ordinarily with the small lyrical stuff that I'm usually working on, which, you know, um, let's face it, you know, rarely gets to the bottom of the page or the right-hand margin. But that's also something that has changed for us, and that poets now are not seen as the great storytellers. They're not seeing that that that, that mantle has passed over to novelists. That's um, and, and this now gives, in a way, this gives you a chance, gives the poet a chance to reclaim that, that ground, which anybody up until the middle of the 18th century would have assumed that the poet and the storyteller were the same thing. Yeah. It happens in oral traditions too. It does happen yeah. on this side of the border to Stedford's, but it doesn't happen in general in English language poetry. No, it doesn't. It happen, I mean, it does happen occasionally, but it's certainly less than it used to. And I, I, I think there is something in me, you know, I, I do have a... a um, an urge to write stories, and even my shorter poems are narratives, I think, in some way. So uh, may maybe it's the opportunity to, to push that further through these, you know, or legitimise that through these old, long poems. The other thing I think so extraordinary about Arthur is because if he, if he did exist, he could only have existed in one very small period of history because it's the only one we don't know anything about. So that's from about... 470, possibly 460, to about 520. Mm. So that's the only period he could have existed in. Conveniently. Uh, conveniently. And it is quite convenient because it's also a period of intense change throughout Europe. It's a time when everything is changing all over the place. And therefore it allows the writer to construct whoever or whatever you like around that process of change. Mm. Having just finished uh, writing a 10-year project on Arthur myself. I know this rather too well. <laughs> Perhaps you'd like to tell us about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I, I, after the book was published, I, uh, I went up to... The, the manuscript's kept in, in Lincoln Cathedral, and uh, I'd, I'd been to see it there when I was uh, writing the poem. I mean, you, you can't work from the uh, you know, original manuscripts. You, well, well, I couldn't anyway. They're, they are indecipherable. And, uh, but it, it, it was a... It was, it was a really moving thing for me to, to, to read, um, you know, my version of this poem alongside uh, something that had clearly meant so much and, uh, uh, to somebody in the past and, and had taken them so long. It, it, this isn't a work that somebody had trotted out, uh, you know, just because they fancied it. You, it, 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 you know, it's a work of great diligence, the, or, the original poem. And... Um, you can really feel when you're reading the, the original poem that the, the author meant it. Mm. Um, so whether that was about Arthur or whether it was about the politics of the day, there's a real um, urgency and a, and a pressure within the poem to, to tell the story. I, I, I should just say that uh, I, had a, I had a better experience there uh, going to see the manuscript at 
Lincoln Cathedral. Uh, I was there sort of all day with it and um, made some little notes in my own notebook and, and copied out some of the illustrations and took some photographs. And uh, Just in comparison with when I went to see the Gawain manuscript the first time in the British Library, um, I, I'd gone on a... It was a cold day and I'd gone down from... West Yorkshire in a, in a big kind of parka and some wellies and turned up in the British Library sort of sweating and steaming and went up to the desk and said, can I see Sir Gawain in the Green Knight, please? And, uh, and she said, oh, you, you do realise it is a sort of precious possession. And uh, I tried to explain a little bit what I was doing. Was obviously, I don't think she'd be like, I could sense her feeling for the panic button under the desk. <laughs> and uh, there were all these um, sort of learned scholars looking over their glasses at me by this time. And eventually she said to me, you know, there aren't many pictures in it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, she's, I, I, I was trying to prove that I knew the manuscript and I said, uh, I, I think you'll find there are t 12 illustrations in it. And she said, yes, and we do postcards of them in the gift shop. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I, went, I went down to the gift shop and bought the postcards. And uh, they, are, they are beautifully reproduced, uh, I have to say. But I, I, I went back sometime later and, uh, you know, on a more official visit. And, and what's really wonderful about the Gawain manuscript and uh, the Mort Arthur manuscript is that they've been read. Yes. You know, you can really yeah. see that, uh, that they've been thumbed, uh, that the pages have been turned, because there are a certain number of medieval manuscripts kept in our libraries which barely look as if they've been opened. Not like uh, PhD theses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but these have been... I mean, the Gawain manuscript has got... Uh, you know, it's not just dog-eared. There are thumbprints on it. There's a bit of blood on it at one point. There's even a bite mark uh, in, <laughs> it, in, in the top. Now, that's how good it was. Yeah. Talk, talking of blood, um, this um, book is absolutely stuffed with gruesome... This guy, this guy was the, um, the sort of chains, chainsaw massacre of his time. <laughs> uh, he didn't hold back when it came to the gore. And perhaps, before I open it to questions, um, Simon, you'd like to give us a bit of um, sheer blood and guts. I mean, I, I, I pretty much could have opened the book at any page. Uh, battle rages from page to page all the way through it. Um, but this is, this, is one, this is one section. Thereafter, the bold bowmen of Britain fought with foot soldiers from foreign lands. Their well-fletched arrows flew at the foe, piercing the fine mail as far as the feathers. Such fighting did fearful harm to the flesh, and arrows flashed from afar into the flanks of steeds. In return, the Dutchmen dealt out their darts, and their sharp missiles shattered the shields. The bolts from their crossbows were so cruelly quick, they sliced the bodies of our brothers before they could blink. So much did they shrink from the shooting of those shafts that scores of defenders on the front line scattered. Great war horses booked, then bounded into battle, and in no time hundreds lay heaped on the heath. Then hastily the highborn and the heathens and others hurtled the heads of the dead men to do harm. Those giants at the front, engendered by fiends, Enjoined with Sir Jonathal and his gentle knights, and with hard steel clubs they clattered at helmets, crushing down crests and crashing through brains, slaying infantry and armoured horses, 
chopping down chevaliers on chalk-white chargers. Neither steel nor steed could stand against them as they astounded and struck at our stout defenders, till the conqueror came with his keen knights and with cruel countenance cried aloud, I trust no Briton will be troubled by this trifle, by bare-legged boys who have blundered into battle. He flourished Excalibur, all flashing and flaring, and galloped to Sir Gallopus, who had grieved him the most, and cleaved him cleanly in two at the knees. Come down, said the king, and call to your comrades. You're too high by half, I have to tell you, and with our saviour's help, you shall soon be handsomer. With his steel sword, he swished off his head. Sternly in the struggle, he struck another, then set upon several with his stout knights, and did not seize until sixty were seen off. And so at this juncture, the giants were outjousted, slain in the assault by steadfast knights. There's nothing romantic about battle. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions now because Simon wants to finish by, by reading a passage. So we'll open it up to questions perhaps a little earlier than we would do normally. Um, we've got a couple of roving mics. Who would, uh, who would like to talk first? Um, let's, since the mic is down here first, let's go in the front row and then we'll work our way back. Thank you. Um, I wondered what you have next in the pipeline and whether you'd ever considered having a crack at Chaucer. Um, it's an interesting question because I, I do want to carry on uh, in, with, with works of this kind, but I'm not sure there is another poem uh, in, in the Middle English canon that's, that's right for me. Um, there are three other very interesting poems in the Gawain manuscript, uh, Cleanness, Patience and, and Pearl. Um, the, the, the problem for me with those poems is that um, they become incredibly devotional uh, at certain sections. And I, I think if you to translate those poems, uh, you probably need to mean it. You know, you probably need to do that with, with some heart. Having said that, per Pearl uh, is, a, is a wonderful poem. Uh, J Jane Draycott made a, a wonderful translation of it recently as well. It's a very upsetting uh, poem through the through the first third, and uh, and it does fascinate me. Um, I've been translating more recently uh, some old English poems, going back to the Anglo-Saxon. I've just finished translating a poem called Deor, and uh, I've started to wonder whether I should try and familiarise myself more uh, with with that language system. Uh, there's a bit more support material around for some of those poems as well than there is for, um, there's virtually, uh, well not nothing, but certainly in comparison with Gawain, hard, hardly anything there. Um, so, the, so the answer to the question is, uh, I, I don't know really, but I, I, I would like to, I'm, I'm, I'm open to uh, suggestions, probably not Beowulf, I, I feel as if that's been done fairly recently. <laughs> right at the back. Thank you. Um, you've taught Simon from time to time about the author, and we don't know who the author is. You seem very confident that it was just one writer. Mm. Are there any theories it could have been by more than one person, or that more than one person had a hand in the creation? Um, there are theories, but I think they're speculative. It, it, it's certainly possible and even probable that the poem came out of a, of a number of oral stories. Um, 
But it, it would be impossible for somebody to hold all that together in their mind as one piece. And I think the other thing that you realise when you're working on it is that uh, it's very written. It feels very written to me. It feels very authored. There are certainly techniques in the poem which feel like uh, moments of glue and overlap. Uh, some of the, the repetition, you know, you, you could maybe imagine that to be a, a mnemonic so that people could remember where they got to in the story. Uh, you, you can feel on occasions where uh, there's a certain episode takes place which is outside the main narrative, and that feels as if it's been drafted in. But I, I do get the sense that, um, you know, because of the flow of the story and the, over, the overarching narrative, that it had to be in the end from the mind of one person or one person deciding to put all this stuff uh, together. Um, and, and, and I suppose that's what's, that's what's exciting about it in the end. I think, I think you know, the, the same arguments could be applied to Homer. Um, I, don't, I don't think we're, we're any closer to knowing, um, you know, whether Homer was one person or many people and, and how these stories eventually came to be, to be written down. Um, but I, I do think there is a, a hand at work behind this poem. Just, just to pick up on that as well, I think it's also important to remember that... Um, plagiarism and you know stealing or what we might allow these days as intertextuality was often thought of as a badge of learning back then uh, so to be able to go to a text that was written by say Lachman or Wasser or Chrétien de Troy and to bring sections into your own work uh, would be thought of as you know something deserving of merit and actually if you think about uh, Mallory I mean, Mallory's become the sort of definitive Arthurian version. He pulled all these stories together, and there's a big lump out of the, the alliterative Mortartha, which he's just subbed straight into his, uh, his, his prose account. Um, so it, they're sort of unstable in that sense, uh, but, but, but definitely a written piece at the end of the day. And how small the average library was at that time. So if you were able to show that learning, it meant that you had access to a bigger library than most other people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was, it was sort of what it was. Um, it's like that bit in Abigail's party. Right. <laughs> Which bit? The um, the bit where they're admiring. Is it Dickens or Shakespeare that they're admiring on the bookshelf? Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, then he says something about because we've never read them. In the middle of you know that um, uh, the author of Gawain comes from the West Midlands. Do you know where the author of Mordartha comes from? And was there much difference in the dialects? Well, we don't absolutely know that the author of Gawain came from the West Midlands. I mean, we, we, there are dialect words in there that seem to pin it down, but it, it, I think it's a fairly fluid geography. Um, North Staffordshire, Cheshire, South Lancashire, edge of the Peak District... Um, and we also feel with Gawain that we're confident about saying that because he seems to be drawing Gawain into that, uh, that geographical territory, especially if you believe that the Green Chapel was, was Ludd's church. Um, I don't think there is a consistent view about this, but I think it's generally uh, accepted that it, it's not, this is not a London, uh, it's not a sort of metropolitan uh, tone of voice, if you could use that phrase back then. Uh, it's um, possibly Midlands, possibly Yorkshire, possibly North East. Some of the people say that there's some Scottish influence on it as well. 
But I'm not, and I, you know, I wouldn't like, I, don't, I won't set myself up as a, an expert in that field. I'm, I'm only sort of repeating what I've read about uh, what other people make of it. I like to think that he came from West Yorkshire. <laughs> Having enjoyed both those books, uh, I was invited uh, just over a year ago to attend the Afghan National Poetry uh, Festival in Lashkagar. And uh, it quickly became obvious that it was a storytelling festival rather than a poetry festival, though with a poetic sort of license put over across the top. And given the way that you've written both those books, are you tempted to look at telling stories which are slightly more modern, of maybe of your own making? I'm not sure that I have the imagination to, uh, you know, to, to create works on that scale. I mean, uh, just, just to sort of tap into what you were saying about Afghanistan there, I, I have, over the last few years, attempted to write war poetry and to write other people's stories of war. Uh, it, it, it's occurred to me that, um, and I, I'm saying this within the context of this being a war poem, and something that we've, you know, war poetry being something that we've written in these islands for a long number of years. Uh, but I was involved in, in making a film a few years ago called The Not Dead, where it occurred to me that it, it, it seems unlikely that trained literary minds, whatever that means, will see frontline action in the way that a trained poet saw frontline action in the First World War. And, and, and therefore, how do, you, how do you get frontline accounts into, into poetry, you know, the frontline of, of experience? And I, I made poems out of the testimonies of, of soldiers for this film. Uh, people, who, veterans of, of, of all different conflicts going right back to, to Malaysia. And uh, I suppose in, in some ways I you know, was trying to honour their, their stories uh, and their experiences of war and, and write those down through, through poems. But um, I, I don't know if that's an answer to the question that you're asking, but I was just thinking about how to, how to weave contemporary war narratives into, into poems. Did we go one? Yeah. Yes. yes. Uh, did you visit any landscapes or sites that you felt were particularly evocative uh, and, or helpful when you were translating? No. <laughs> That's easy. Did, have you given it to anybody? That would make it. That maybe that would make a good book. You know, following Arthur's uh, Arthur's path across Western Europe. I mean, it's very clearly mapped out in the in the book. And to try and work out how much of what this author describes uh, still exists. When I was translating Gawain, I did, but. You know, it, it, it's really only speculation uh, in the Gawain poem about where we're travelling at certain points. In, in fact, I made a documentary film about that and recreated the journey. But apart from a, a couple of places, like when he crosses the D and goes through Wirral, uh, a, a certain amount of it is, is, is guesswork. But uh, no, I think if I'd have had the budget uh, and all the time in the world, then that, that would have been, uh, you know, a great luxury. I'm not sure it would have helped with the poem necessarily, but... Given, given the feasting in the book, you could do it as a, as a, as a together with a chef. You could go all This is around. all starting to make sense to me now. <laughs> yes. um, so, Suddenly a, I see a, a 25-part series trip, coming on. A big trip with lots of feasts. <laughs> yes, you know, that sounds all right. Maybe not the war bits, though. The wine was a bit rough in those days. Mm. Um, there was another one up here, I think, somewhere. Yes. Oh, over yeah. there, right. 
Um, I think one thing I really noticed when you were reading was um, the rhythm of that, and that was a very key part of uh, making it attractive and compelling. Could you say something about that? And um, mm. are you writing syllabic, uh, or is it beats in a line? How does it work? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not syllabic, and uh, it's not necessarily beats in a line, although sometimes it falls into a, a pattern. It's essentially alliterative, um, and it probably harks back to you know, the ang Anglo-Saxon form of composition, uh, half a line, a caesura, half a line. Um, and so the, 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 the most typical, or, or, the, or, the, or the, the pattern that it seems to strive for is uh, a phrase with two stressed alliterating syllables, and then a, a kind of half breath, and then uh, at least one more alliterating stressed syllable on the other t on the other side. Sometimes in the original you get four, five, even six. Sometimes when when it's, it's really showing off, uh, and occasionally, uh, very very occasionally, there, there aren't any. Uh, as if the poet is having a bit of an off day, um, uh, but but that's great because it gives you leeway as a as a translator. If it was absolutely nailed on, you know, metrically or through a stress pattern, every line, I think you would have to stick to it. But but it isn't. There's something fluid about it. Uh, but but those those alliterations. That's the music that I, I I was talking about. The you know the sort of sonic experience of the poem. It, it also makes it on occasions into a bit of a tongue twister. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, some lines you feel as if you know you know it's a chewing a fly. Um, but I think I think it's all part of the energy of the poem. And in the battle scenes. Uh, you know, it heightens the language, and in some of the more moving scenes, I think it makes them makes it more poignant. But it's not a poem to try and read out loud without your teeth in. Yeah, I wouldn't know about that. We've got yet. <laughs> we've got time for one more question before Simon reads at the end. Yes, down the front here. You got a mic down the front here. Um, given the vibrancy of the language and the particularly bloodthirsty scenarios that we've heard described, is there scope for this poem to be used particularly to draw more young boys into a love of poetry and a love of story? Because so often you hear of them being turned off this kind of um, literature in school and how could we use it more to, to draw people into a love of poetry? Very good point. Yeah, I mean, I, I hesitate to, to, to make, uh, you know, a link between blood and guts and what boys are interested in, uh, but I, I, I certainly think that that might prove uh, fruitful. Um, I know that uh, the Gawain, uh, my translation of, of Gawain has been used in schools for students as young as 12, and I've, I've gone into school, actually, and, uh, and, and read the poem and, and worked with them on it. So I, I think... I, I think there's also something playful in these poems as well, which is attractive. Uh, you know, the, the, the playfulness of the language is attracted to, to people at, at, at that, that age. I, I, I get slightly, um, th this has no, nothing to do with what you were saying, but I do get fed up when, you know, 
young people are criticised for not being interested in language. I just don't think that's true at all. I think they're fantastically interested in language, you know, whether it's through texting or blogging or, or whatever. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's often a language that we don't understand, uh, a code, if you like. But essentially, that's what these things are. You know, the, the, these, these are their own code. Um, so, you know, if, that, if this point can be useful in, in that way, then, then, then so be it. Um, Simon's so going to finish by reading something from, um, uh, well, you'll introduce it yourself, The Death of Gawain. But Gawain in this is a very different Gawain from Gawain in The Green Knight, and an extraordinary character, and perhaps one of the greatest characters in the poem itself. Just before he reads it, I wanted to say that if any of you are wanting to do something with the Olympics other than the Olympics, that um, Simon has been instrumental in putting together an extraordinary event called the Pan Poetry Parnassus, which will be involving poets from all over the world over the next couple of months. And do, uh, do take part in that yourselves and enjoy that. Simon. Yeah, th thank you, Simon. I could also say as well, thank you very much for, for coming and uh, trudging here through the, uh, through the weather. Um, this, we're back in England now. Gawain has led an assault on Arthur's enemy, Mordred, and has been killed. And this is Arthur's reaction to that death, which I think is the emotional climax of, of, of the book. Our king kept on hunting with a heavy heart, tracking down the true ranks of the round table. They were heaped on the earth, piled on their own with slaughtered Saracens encircling the scene and good Sir Gawain in his glinting gear face down in the field fists full of grass his bold red banners brought to the floor his sword and broad shield swimming with blood never was our sovereign so saddened and sorrowful or so sunk in his spirits as he was at that sight the sovereign stared, stricken with horror. He groaned with grief and wept great tears. Then he knelt to the corpse and clasped his comrade, cast up his visor and quickly kissed him, looked at his eyelids which were locked shut, and at his lead-like lips and lifeless white face. Then the crowned king let out a loud cry. Dearest of my kind, I am cut to the core, for now my honour is hollow and my war over, and my hope, my health, my fortune in arms, and my heart and hardiness rested wholly on him. My counsel, my comfort, the keeper of my cares, he was captain among knights who lived under Christ and worthy to be king, though I wore the crown. The sovereign stooped, distraught at heart, cupped the blood kindly in his clean hands, then bore the corpse to his kinsman's birthplace. Here I make my oath, was the king's utterance, to the Messiah and to Mary, that mild queen of heaven. I shall never again hunt or set harrying hounds upon roe deer or reindeer that run upon the earth, or let greyhound glide, or goshawk fly, or see fowl felled that flap on the wing, and no falcon or formal shall I handle on my fist, or join on this earth in the joys of the gyre falcon, 
or reign as royalty, or host my round table, till my dear man's death is duly avenged. But listless will lie still while my life lasts, till our deity and death have done what they will. Thank you very much.